0: The greatest miracle of the 20th century was one that clearly signaled that we are living in the season of the Lord's return when He will reign over this world for a thousand years from Mount Zion in Jerusalem. What was that great miracle? Stay tuned. Lamb and Lion Ministries presents
1: Christ in Prophecy,
0: a program that focuses on the fundamentals of Bible prophecy. Showing how current events in the news relate to biblical predictions of end time events and the soon return of Jesus. Now, here's your host, Dr. David Reagan. Greetings in the name of Jesus, our blessed hope, and welcome to Christ in Prophecy. I want to talk with you about the greatest miracle of the 20th century. It was a miracle that had been prophesied over 2,600 years ago in the Hebrew Scriptures. Can you guess what it was? There were a lot of very important events that occurred in the 20th century, and a number of them could be considered miraculous in nature. A few that come to mind are the first flight of a powered airplane in December of 1903, the first world war fought from 1914 to 1918, the first transatlantic flight in May of 1927, the discovery in 1928 of penicillin, the first antibiotic. The Great Depression from 1929 to 39, the development of the first electronic computer in 1940, the Second World War from 1939 to 1945, the explosion of the first atomic bomb in New Mexico on July 16, 1945, the launch of television broadcasting in the 1950s, the launch of the first space satellite in October 1957. The first manned space flight in April 1961, the first man to land on the Moon in July 1969, the collapse of the Soviet Union in December 1991, the formation of the European Union in November of 1993, public access to the Internet in 1995, and finally the resurgence of Islam as an international threat. Which of these events would you select as the greatest miracle of the 20th century. Well, I personally would not select any of them. I believe there was an event in the 20th century that was more miraculous than all these events put together. It occurred on May the 14th, 1948. And I'm referring, of course, to the reestablishment of the nation of Israel. In 1948, I was only 10 years old. And I'd grown up in a church that never taught Bible prophecy. So I had no idea of the importance of the event that occurred on May 14th of that year, nor did anyone in my family. But there were many evangelical Christians who did recognize its importance. The event I'm talking about is, of course, the reestablishment of the nation of Israel. Think for a moment. About how impossible this event seemed to be. For over 2,000 years, the Jewish people had been scattered from their homeland, living in nations all over the world, and being severely persecuted wherever they lived. And even though the Bible clearly prophesied that in the end times the Jewish people would be regathered to their homeland and their state would be reestablished, Christians tended to spiritualize these prophecies and claim that they did not mean what they said. One of these prophecies can be found in Ezekiel 37. The Lord put Ezekiel in the middle of a valley of dry bones and then told him to preach to the bones. And as he did so, the bones began to come alive and start moving and flesh started growing on the bones. And before long, Ezekiel had a great army of people standing before him. Needless to say, Ezekiel was absolutely astonished by this vision and wanted to know what it meant. And here's how the Lord explained it to him. The Lord said, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, the Jewish people, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And then you will know that I am the Lord. When I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people, I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. So, what is the Lord saying here? He is telling Ezekiel that although the Jewish people may feel like they have been cut off from God, that is not true. The Lord still cares for them, and one day He intends to open the nations, their graves, where they have been scattered, and bring them back to their homeland. And notice that He specifically identifies the homeland. He doesn't call it Canaan Land. He doesn't call it Palestine or Zion. No, in verse 12 He calls it the Land of Israel, which is the name the Jews gave the land when they re-established their nation on May the 14th, 1948. Another prophecy about the reestablishment of Israel, and one of my favorites, is a symbolic prophecy that is found in Isaiah 66, verses 7 and 8. It reads as follows Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? This prophecy says that the nation of Israel would one day be reestablished, and like a woman who gives birth before she has any pains, the nation's birth pains will occur after it comes back into being. And folks, that is exactly what happened. The modern state of Israel came into existence on May the 14th, 1948, and the very next day, the birth pains began as five Arab nations attacked. And the birth pains have continued to this day with war after war. The War of Independence of 1948 and 49 was followed by the Suez War of 1956. Then came the Six-Day War of 1967, the Yom Kippur War in 1973, the Lebanese War in 1982, the First Intifada or Arab Uprising from 1987 to 1993, the First Gulf War of 1990 and 91, the Second Intifada from 2000 to 2005. The Hezbollah War of 2006, the first Gaza War with Hamas in 2009, the second Gaza War in 2012, and the third Gaza War in 2014. War after war after war. And Israel has miraculously survived all of them. And it will continue to do so because of a promise in God's Word found in Zechariah 12:6. It reads, in that day, the end times, I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot among pieces of wood, and a flaming torch among sheaves, so that they will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples." Now, with that background let's take a closer look at how the State of Israel actually came into being. And for that story let's go to Independence Hall in Tel Aviv. I'd like to begin by looking at a Bible verse that is in Isaiah chapter 66 that has to do with what happened here in this room. Isaiah chapter 66. There are many, many prophecies in the Bible concerning the regathering of the Jewish people and the reestablishment of the state. In fact, there are more prophecies in the Old Testament about the regathering of the people and the reestablishment of the state than any other topic. It's the most prolific prophecies in the Old Testament just over and over and over God is going to regather the Jewish people in the end times in unbelief, and their state will be reestablished. The reason I'm going to read you this one is because it's really my favorite. It's a symbolic prophecy, it's put in symbolic terms, but those terms are very, very uh, descriptive. Isaiah 66, beginning with verse 7. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. Who has ever heard of such a thing? You ever hear of somebody give birth to a child and then have the labor pains afterwards? Who has seen such a thing? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Shall a nation be born all at once? Well, that's what happened. On one day, the nation was reborn here in the city of Tel Aviv, in this place right here, and the birth pains began the next day when five Arab nations attacked. And the birth pangs have continued to this day. First was the War of Independence in '48 and '49. Then came the Suez War in 1956. Uh, uh, then came the Six-Day War in 1967. Then came the Yom Kippur War in 1973. Then came the two Arab Intifadas. Uh, the first um, Gulf War. It's just been war after war after war. The most recent ones being the war with Hezbollah and then the war with Hamas. And now everything is gathering for the Great War. The next one is probably going to be the Great One as the Arab nations close in and try to take Jerusalem. Uh, so, and it is going to be the, the most destructive war for Israel because in the past I would even bring groups over here during wars because it was very safe. But that would not be true in the future because the future war is going to be a missile war. Thousands of missiles are going to come in here. They are going to come from Iraq, Iran, they are going to come from the north, uh, Hezbollah. They're going to come from the south, from Hamas, and this—they're just going to be raining down like rain. And so it's going to be a very, very serious time. And the people here in Tel Aviv are the ones that are most subject. This is the focal point. This is where they're going to focus the missiles, because they're afraid if they shoot into Jerusalem, they may end up with a missile hitting the Dome of the Rock, and which I think would be very appropriate. But nonetheless, <laughs> uh, they don't want that to happen. So, anyway, with that scripture in mind, let's talk a moment about what happened here. When we get to Jerusalem, we're going to go to Mount Herzl Cemetery, and we're going to see the centerpiece of that cemetery is the tomb of this man, Theodore Herzl. And we'll talk more about him when we get there. All I want to say right now about him is that he was a Hungarian Jew who lived in Austria. He wanted to be a playwright, never made it. But he was a writer, he was a great intellectual, he was an egomaniac. In fact, uh, hardly anybody could get along with him. But uh, he uh, was a man who had a vision for the Jewish people to go back to their homeland. And in 1896, he wrote a book called "The Jewish State." It wasn't really a book, it was a booklet in which he said, "It's time to go back home." He had, had a, I'll talk about this more in his tomb. It had a premonition of the Holocaust coming. And he said, "It's time to go back home. We must go back to our homeland." There were only two people in the entire U.S. government who favored the creation of the State of Israel. One was the President, Harry Truman. The other was his right hand man, his counselor, his private lawyer, uh, rather his personal lawyer, and that was Clark Clifford. Clark Clifford favored it because he was a Bible student. And he believed that the Jewish people needed to come back to their homeland. Harry Truman favored it because he was a Bible student. I don't know how much you know about Harry Truman. He was a remarkable person. You can look at this and see God's hand orchestrating Harry Truman into this position. Because prior to Harry Truman, the Vice President of the United States had been Henry Wallace, who FDR just dropped summarily and said, I want Harry Truman to be the next Vice President. Henry Wallace turned out to be an extreme socialist, a communist sympathizer, an extreme liberal. So anyway, God orchestrated that. Harry Truman comes in. FDR doesn't even know Harry Truman. They'd met maybe one time. Harry Truman was not informed of anything. When he became president, he didn't even know there was an atomic bomb. They had to call him in and tell him that, because FDR had never shared that with him. So Harry Truman's in the position. Now here's the interesting thing about Harry. Watch how God orchestrates this. First, he orchestrates for Harry Truman to be president. Second, Harry Truman was a child prodigy. He was reading at age three. By the time he started his school at age six, he had already read the Bible two times. He was a member of a family that was devout Christians, the Baptists, and he knew the Bible backwards and forwards. The time he started his school, he was a guy who was had almost a photographic memory. I used to teach a course on the presidency, and every year when the course was over, we would go to Independence, Missouri, and we would meet with President Truman. We did this many times. This was after he was president. And and he could you could ask him about any president of the United States, any president, anything. How many children did he have? What was his wife's name? What, and it was like a it's just unbelievable. He, he was a walking encyclopedia of the history of the presidents of the United States. So God's orchestrating this. He puts him in as vice president. He has a man who knows the Bible. But they were the only two. Everybody else in the U.S. government was not only opposed, they were overwhelmingly opposed to the establishment of the state of Israel. The Joint Chiefs of Staff had a special meeting. They came to the president and said, Mr. President, we voted unanimously no Jewish state. And you know what the argument was? It was the same argument you hear today. Very same one. If you recognize a Jewish state, it will cut off our access to Arab oil. The most important thing in the Middle East is access to Arab oil. We must have access. We must placate the Arabs. Don't worry about the Jews. The Arabs will destroy them overnight anyway. But Truman wouldn't make any commitment. He wouldn't say one way or the other. He just listened. Now, more important than the Joint Chiefs of Staff were two other people. One was the Secretary of Defense, who was a very renowned man, and, and he was totally opposed. And he was telling the president: do not recognize Israel. But the most important person was General Marshall. George C. Marshall. Truman worshiped at his feet. He idolized the man. He was the leader of the United States forces in World War II. Most people think it was Eisenhower. No, Eisenhower was a field commander. The person who was in charge of all U.S. military forces and all U.S. strategy in World War II was General George C. Marshall, so valuable to FDR that FDR would never allow him to go in the field for fear he might be killed. General Marshall had become Secretary of State, and he gave a famous speech, I believe it was at Harvard University, right after he became Secretary of State, and said, We must. Rebuild Europe. It's lying in ruins. The Communists will take over all kinds of radical groups unless we go in and rebuild. We've got to provide them aid to rebuild. And the Marshall Plan was born. And that Marshall Plan rebuilt Europe. And as a result of that he was, he was given the Nobel Priest Prize. He was given the, uh, the Man of the Year in 1947 on the front of Time Magazine, the Man of the Year. This was the man that Harry Truman idolized. And General Marshall came to Truman and he said, "Under no condition are you to recognize Israel." And he was Secretary of State at that time. Truman hated the State Department. If you've ever read his writings, he always referred to them as the, fancy, the guys in fancy striped shoots, the striped pants, the guys in the fancy striped pants. That's how he referred to the State Department. There are a bunch of intellectuals who don't know have any common sense is the way he referred to them. But he really idolized General Marshall, and General Marshall said, "You will not recognize the State of Israel." There was tremendous debate going on. But God was preparing Harry Truman's heart. Not only had He put him in that position, not only had He given him this ability to read and he knew the Bible backwards and forwards, but something else happened. This is really amazing. You can see God's hand in this. When Harry Truman became a soldier in World War I and went to Europe guess who became his very best bosom buddy? A guy by the name of Eddie Jacobs, a Jewish man from Independence, Missouri. This was a time when Jews were spit upon and hated in the United States like blacks were. And yet he became Harry Truman's best friend and was his best friend for the rest of his life. In fact, when World War I was over, they came back and the two of them opened a haberdashery shop and sold men's clothing together. And for the rest of his life, that was his best friend. So God puts as his best friend a Jewish man. He gives him as his right hand counsel Clark Clifford, who believed in the Jewish destiny. So he's just surrounding him with these people like it's a, like it's a fence around him, while the rest of the U.S. government is saying no, 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 no. On May the 12th, 1948, the Jews were going to make their declaration on the 14th. On May the 12th, there was a meeting at the White House. Incredible meeting. George Marshall said, "I want to bring my staff and we want to meet with you, Mr. President, and we want to tell you all the reasons why you should not recognize the state of Israel." He came with a large staff. And one of them was appointed to present the argument to the President. This fellow got up, he presented this long argument to the President about all the reasons why the President should not recognize the State of Israel. And then when he sat down the President said, "Okay, Mr. Clifford would you speak? And Clark Clifford got up and started speaking. And General Marshall stood up and said, why is this political hack speaking at this meeting? Because that's what he considered Clark Clifford to be, nothing but a political hack. He said, This is the State Department. I want to ask you, Mr. President, why is this man even at this meeting? And the President said, Because I invited him. And Marshall sat down. Clark Clifford continued. He gave his entire talk about why it should be recognized. George Marshall was sitting there steaming. And when he finished his speech, Marshall said something that absolutely astounded everyone in the room. I mean, To this day it's hard to believe He said this. He said, Mr. President I won't argue about this anymore. I have only one thing to say. Now this is in front of a lot of witnesses. If you recognize the State of Israel I will vote for your opponent on Election Day. The people who were there said they they were just so astounded they just, it just sat in, in absolute silence. Nobody could believe He spoke to the President that way. See, the election was coming up in November of 1948. Finally, they said they seemed like an eternity. And the president said, You know, I think the best thing for all of us to do is to go home and get a good night's rest and think about this. And they all left. Next morning, May 13, the Secretary of State called the president. He said, Mr. President, I've thought about it. And he said, Here's where I am. I am still totally opposed to it. But if you recognize the State of Israel I will not speak one contrary word. I will be silent and I will not speak out against your decision. The decision is yours. Still nobody knew for sure how he was going to decide. Meanwhile while all that was going on Eddie Jacobson called the President. He said, Mr. President you've been in office since 1945 and I have never once asked anything of you. I want to come to Washington D.C. and meet with you personally. He had never done that. He came to Washington D.C. He met with the president. And he said, "Mr. President, I believe that when you were in your father's loins that God anointed you to recognize the state of Israel. I've never asked anything of you. I want to ask you to recognize the state of Israel." He said, "I think this is of God." And he left. Well, there was Truman in the midst of all this. The next day, on May the 14th, 1948, David Ben-Gurion stood up here. <coughs> And he read the Declaration of Independence, and 11 minutes later, Harry Truman signed a short document saying that he recognized the State of Israel. And armaments began to flow to Israel, and that is the reason that Harry Truman is considered such a great person here in the State of Israel, with statues of him all over the place, because he's considered to be the savior of Israel on that day, because the next morning they were attacked by five Arab nations. I want us to pause now for a moment and I'll come back and I want to ask Gary Fisher to come up and I want to ask Gary to uh, read from the Declaration of Independence.
1: In the land of Israel, the Jewish people came into being in this land which shaped their spiritual, religious and national character. Here they lived in sovereign independence. Here they created a culture of national and universal import. And gave to the world the eternal book of books. Exiled by force, still the Jewish people kept faith with their land and all the countries of their dispersion, steadfast in their prayer and hope to return to here revive their political freedom. Fired by this attachment of history and tradition, the Jews in every generation strove to renew their roots in the ancient homeland. And in recent generations, they came home in their multitudes. Veteran pioneers, and defenders, and newcomers. Braving blockades they made the wilderness bloom, revived their Hebrew tongue, and built villages and towns. They founded a thriving society of its own economy and culture, pursuing peace, but able to defend itself, bringing the blessing of progress to all the inhabitants of the land, dedicated to the attainment of sovereign independence. In 1897, The first Zionist Congress met the call of Theodor Herzl. Seer the vision of the Jewish State gave public voice to the right of the Jewish people to national restoration of their land. The right was acknowledged in the Balfour Declaration on 2 November 1917 and confirmed in the Mandate of the League of Nations which accorded international validity to the historical connection between the Jewish people and the Land of Israel. And to their right to reestablish their national home. The Holocaust that in time destroyed millions of Jews in Europe again proved beyond doubt the compelling need to solve the problem of Jewish homelessness and dependence by the renewal of the Jewish state in the land of Israel, which would happen wide, the gates. Open wide the gates of the homeland, every Jew, and endow the Jewish people with the status of a nation with the equality of rights within the family of nations. It is the natural right of the Jewish people, like any other people, to control their own destiny in their sovereign state. Accordingly, we, the members of the National Council representing the Jewish people in the land of Israel, and the Zionist Movement have assembled in the day of the termination of the British Mandate for Palestine and by virtue of our natural and historic right and the resolution of the General Assembly of the United Nations do hereby proclaim the establishment of the Jewish State in the Land of Israel, the State of Israel." <laughs>
0: The state was established. Harry Truman recognized it. Arms began to flow. Five Arab nations attacked, and the Israelis were able to survive until this day. But that doesn't end the story. Following that was a national election coming up in November of 1948. Harry Truman had no chance of winning the election, none whatsoever. The Democrat Party split three ways. Harry Truman received the nomination of the Democrats. Strom Thurmond pulled out of the party and formed what was called the Dixiecrat Party which composed all the southern states, a party that was in charge of favor of states rights and segregation. And Henry Wallace the Socialist formed the Progressive Party and all of the socialist Democrats and liberal Democrats pulled out and they supported him. The Democrat Party split three ways. The Republicans united under the very handsome and charismatic governor of New York, Tom Dewey. Truman had so little chance of being elected that many newspapers printed their headlines in advance Dewey defeats Truman. You've probably seen the famous picture of Truman holding up one of those papers. To the astonishment of everyone, including Harry Truman, he was re-elected. It was the greatest upset in the history of American politics. No presidential election like it since then or before. And how he won, nobody knows. But God says in his word: to those who bless Israel, I will bless them, and to those who curse Israel, I will curse them. And he blessed Harry Truman for the decision he made. Why should this be of any significance to us? simply because God fulfilled a promise He made thousands of years ago in this room. And He's made a lot of promises to His Church, a lot of promises. And every time I see Him fulfilling a promise to the Jewish people, their regathering from the four corners of the earth, the reestablishment of their state, the revival of their language, the reoccupation of the city of Jerusalem. When I see all these things happening I know God is going to be faithful to fulfill every promise He's made to you and me. And we can praise him for that. And so you have it the miraculous story of how God fulfilled his ancient promise to one day reestablish the nation of Israel. Well, folks, I hope this program has been a blessing to you, and I hope you will be back with us again next week. Until then, this is Dave Reagan speaking for Lamb and Lion Ministries saying, Look up, be watchful,
1: for our redemption is drawing near. Ten of Dr. Reagan's sermons delivered in Israel have been put together in one DVD album titled Sermons from the Holy Land. Some of the sermons included in this album are The Miracle of Israel, delivered at Independence Hall in Tel Aviv, The Evil of Replacement Theology, delivered at the Crusader Castle in Echo, The Healing Ministry of Jesus, delivered at the Galilee village of Chorazin, The Virgin Birth, delivered at the Church of the Annunciation in Nazareth, and much, much more. These ten sermons are included on two DVD discs in this album. The total running time for all the sermons is 2 hours and 35 minutes. You can obtain the album for a gift of $20 or more, including the cost of shipping. Just call the number you see on the screen or place your order through our website at lamblion.com.